510-849-2590. Pacifica is an equal opportunity employer. You are listening to KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno, kpfa.org. And it is now time here on Cover to Cover for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Do stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw today is 17 July 2007, and the shadows are dark indeed these days. Oh, let us fly away to where the press does not depress us every day. Yes, I want to hide under a rock, flee from my summer depression. Invariably, um, all this beatific weather (laughs) makes me as gloomy and pessimistic as they come. It's always with me, this uh, this melancholia, even on to the end of the world. Jeez, you know, it seems to me that things have reached the point where many people, most of us, can just do nothing but reiterate the obvious, say over and over again what, uh, you know, is staring us in the face. Um, I mean, is it the worst of times or just the saddest? And is it just the USA? Is it just us? Or is there a global malaise? Uh, Personally, I think that it's mostly here in what is called the developed world. Uh, Who is the poet who wrote, uh, It is closing time in the gardens of the West. Dear me, dear me, uh, When I try to put into words the feelings that I have about my country, my home, after all, my my mother's land, uh, my clan's home, the what um, the place where my narrative has been written, I wind up maudlin or morbid and full of self-pity. My overworked, tragic sense makes a mess of everything. Still, if history has taught us anything, it has taught us that no species lasts forever. (laughs) You remember, you remember those um, charming uh, creatures, the dinosaurs, said 150 million years? And they had bird brains, face it. Um, we don't, uh, we don't 
seemed to be going to last as long as they did. Perhaps the earth will be happier without us still. I can't help mourning the loss of our curious consciousness, this human thing, this business of being aware, uh, mindful, even if we only glimpse the extent of this universe, this cosmos. To lose this awareness, it's so grim, but I keep telling myself um, that the other creatures are just as perceptive as we are, and of course they are, but we're the ones with this this curious language, uh, music, uh, paint, architecture, all this good stuff. Try as I may, I, I still have this, this um, one-upmanship. I think that there is something that human beings have that is special, and it will be a great loss to the earth. I think I, well, I hope I'm wrong, damn, damn. Anyway, the fools and fanatics that have brought us to this end, I just curse them. There was a book by Ariana Huffington titled uh, Fools and Fanatics or Fanatics and Fools. She designated the fanatics, that was the Republicans, right, and the fools were the Democrats, right, yes. Uh, that's pretty close, I think, yes, I think of the right wing, as the folks who are the, uh, yes, um, their fundamentalism is the for us or against us mentality, pretty moronic. The left wing is the all or nothing, you know, the sort of thing uh, Democrats or liberals, let's call them, they always find something to, um, what is that, to reduce uh, even themselves, what is that old joke, a liberal is someone who won't take his own side in an argument. <laughs> if I get one more note or letter telling me that Hillary Clinton has made mistakes, uh, <laughs> this is pretty obvious. Over and over again, we have to remind ourselves that politics is the art of the possible. The Messiah is not running for public office. Politics is not uh, a game for saints. It's a game for... Uh, for fools, yes. It's just, well, actually, it's a game for liars, and the secret is to be the best liar of them all. That way you can rule, you can run the country. Uh, I'm so, what is the word, uh, desperate for words. I need to read you a page from an essay on our national character. I thought that might uh, that might help help get me what I would call balanced or uh, uh, what's the word for that uh, uh, synthesized synthesized that's it I need a synthesis <laughs> Emily Dickinson wrote that her business was circumference I remember thinking about that for years and I thought yes but today in the 21st century the problem is synthesis, uh, collage, how to put it all together or put it in a, uh, in juxtaposition so that it makes some sense. Anyway, I found this piece by Earl Shoris, S-H-O-R-R-I-S, called The National Character. 
It's in Harper's Magazine, June 2007. It's part of a long article in which um, <clears throat> the editors of Harper's, of which this author is one, write about undoing Bush and how they're going to repair eight years of sabotage, bungling, and neglect. And they cover everything, you know, the environment and uh, all the good stuff and wind up with, uh, let's see, the national character, mm-hmm. which, of course, is at the, the bottom of everything, the back of everything. Uh, it's all about the disposition to evil. Or, as my father used to say, I remember him during World War II and other times, usually hopping around on one foot. And his favorite expression when things went wrong was, up pops the devil, he would yell. Up pops the devil. <laughs> I suppose that's a cheerful way of looking at it. Uh, I can't quite see Bush as a uh, pop-up toy. But anyway, this guy Earl Shores is a contributing editor of Harper's, and he's got a book out in case you're interested. His new book is The Politics of Heaven, America in Fearful Times. It will be published next month in August, and I have it on order. I hope that we can take a look at it here on KPFA. Its uh, publishers are W.W. W. Norton. Once again, the title is The Politics of Heaven, America in Fearful Times. This author is Earl Shoris, S-H-O-R-R-I-S. And this is a little bit of what he has to say. He says, the undoing of the American character has a long history. It took more than half a century from a summer's day in August when the United States used the first weapon of mass destruction to the lies the Bush administration used to cover its invasion of Iraq. Had there not been that horrific day at Hiroshima, and had the fear generated by that day not remained in the American consciousness, passed on from generation to generation, the Senate might not have voted Bush the power to invade a sovereign nation. But the World Trade Center had been destroyed by the time the Senate voted, and all the fears hidden away in the soul of a society in love with its comforts had reemerged nowhere more powerfully than in the man who sat in a classroom full of children on 9-11, paralyzed by the dreadful news. It is not power, but fear that corrupts, if not absolutely, then deeply beyond the barrier of reason. The wound of fear has produced six of the worst years in American history, worse even than the Civil War. For there is no Abraham Lincoln to guide the moral character of the country, nor is there a foreseeable end to this war. We can no longer be certain even of its geographical or political limits. We are a fearful nation now, led by fearful people. This is the problem we must try to resolve. In the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran minister and author of an important work of philosophy, raised again Aristotle's question of a disposition to evil. It was not so much a single evil act that concerned Bonhoeffer, a German, 
as it was the disposition to evil. <laughs> His concern led him to leave a safe position in the United States and return to Germany. He wanted to oppose Hitler. He was implicated in the plot to kill the Führer, and Bonhoeffer was sent to prison, and then to Flossenburg concentration camp. Shortly before the liberation of the camp, he was stripped, marched through the corridors to the gallows, and hanged. His legacy is that an ordinary man, not a hero, may raise the hero's question about a government. Do the actions of the Bush administration and its supporters in the Congress result from a disposition to evil? If that is not the disposition of all of them, it cannot be denied in the case of Cheney, Rumsfeld, Rove, Wolfowitz, and even Bush himself. If their actions had been limited to the prosecution of a war, the war itself might be called a single evil act but it is part of a congeries of acts that point in at least some persons to a disposition to evil. No more serious charge can be levied against a person or a government. If the charge is correct, Bonhoeffer's life tells us that we should not wait for historians to make the judgment. And if the judgment is correct, we should try to understand the etiology of evil it is the source. Where is it coming from? Yes. Don't interrupt, Jennifer. I'm reading to you from Earl Shorey's uh, essay on our national character. <laughs> the war, he writes, did not come about, that's the Iraq war, because of a political miscalculation or the misreading of an unavoidable accident. It is not an error. It is an ethical failure that has spread through every department of this administration into the Congress and down into the states. In the promoters of the war, Paul Wolfowitz chief among them, we can see that fearsome times, fearful ideas underlay their history and thinking. For Wolfowitz, it was family members killed in the Holocaust. For Cheney and Rumsfeld, it was the Cold War with its constant threat of a new kind of death, one that promised to obliterate all memory of the dead. This new kind of death heralded the final triumph of technology over the human desire to remain, to imagine someone in centuries to come, noting that the scattered stones had been worked by an intelligent hand. We abhor cowardice and revere courage, in part for the good courage does the rest of our character. In ancient Greece, it was one of the four cardinal virtues, along with temperance, prudence, and justice none of which can be found in either the Bush administration or the majority of the Congress. It is difficult to suggest which is the preeminent virtue or the parent of the others, 
but one can say with some certainty that a fearful person is unlikely to be temperate, prudent, or just. It is reasonable to think that as courage improves the moral character of a person or a government, fear worsens it. Cutting taxes for the rich and adding billions to the national debt is not prudent, leaving millions of people, many of them children, in dire poverty in the richest nation in the history of the world is not just. Silencing the press is not temperate, nor is secret surveillance of the citizenry. Failing to put an end to an unjust war because one is afraid, like the Democrats, of repercussions at the polls is anything but courageous. If this were a sermon, I might speak of the other set of virtues, faith, hope, and charity. The government has an overabundance of faith, if by faith we mean the expectation of heaven. But by the same token, the government seems to have little hope for a better life on earth, paying no attention to the sickening of the planet and charity is now utterly without representation in our government. Of the Christian virtues, none has been more demeaned by this government than faith. An ancient definition of the word antimony is the belief that faith gives one permission to commit immoral acts. One such act might be to start a war by invading and occupying a distant country, fomenting a civil war in which non-combatants die at the rate of a hundred a day. A contemporary definition of antimony is adherence to conflicting principles, <laughs> imperialism and democracy, as in the plan to impose democracy through military occupation. The word virtue, in either the Greek or Christian sense, does not apply to the Bush administration or to many of its cohort in Congress. Some of our representatives now lie. Others accept bribes. At least one abused children. Many participate in fixing elections, and then there is the war. The result has been an American decline so precipitous. It may not be reversed for generations, if ever. If there was a method for the accomplishment of the fall, it may have been the wish of the country to engage life at a distance, to think, as I am doing here, of grand issues, the works and minds of philosophers and fools, but not, not to engage a world where white bread is sold by the slice or where a man must labor for an hour to earn a tomato. Distance is a means of managing fear. It was not Hiroshima 
that made nuclear weapons so fearsome. But the ritual of American schoolchildren hiding under their desks as a preparation for war. The fear that drives the government comes of the inescapable logic of history and self-regard. If we are good and we killed 140,000 people, mainly women and children, on a single morning in summer and soon thereafter repeated the act in Nagasaki as if to prove our willingness to engage in mass destruction, what can we expect of our enemies who are not good? If we responded to an attack on the World Trade Center by invading a country that had no part in the attack, and we are good, what can we expect of our enemies who are not good? We are not gods. We have no sense of atonement. We have become brave in answering pollsters and timid in pursuing action. At the speed of the world now, another 18 months of a government with a disposition to evil is time enough for the compounding of its acts, for its failures to settle into permanence. The undoing of these last six years may not be possible. Certainly it cannot happen soon. It is a comfort of sorts to think that the disposition to evil is limited to the Bush administration and its followers in the legislature. But there is an itch in that idea. Bush and his minions in the Congress were re-elected in 2004. Could there have been any cause for that but fear? And would the country have turned against him if the predictions of his court of fools had been correct? and the invasion and occupation had been a piece of cake? The kinds of death that make us fearful now have no antecedents. No one had used a weapon of mass destruction before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and no one has used such a weapon since. But there are thousands of such weapons now waiting there had never been such a hidden and devastating attack on the U.S. mainland as the one on 9-11. The first step in understanding how the country will think of this different death and what parts, if any, of the necessary reversal of the Bush years it will accomplish is the understanding that the actions of these last six years were not a proper response that a disposition to evil is not a resolution of fear. To the three basic questions written by Immanuel Kant at the height of the Enlightenment, we must add another. Kant's basic questions, basic three, are what can I know, what should I do, what may I hope? And the one we must add, 
is why am I so afraid? It is a beginning. That's the end of the essay by uh, uh, Earl Shoris, S-H-O-R-R-I-S, in Harper's of June 2007. Uh, I've made some notes in the margins. I do remember that business of the nuclear weapons. My school teacher down in La Jolla didn't make us hide under the desk. She said that was silly. She said that we should go outside and get under the trees in the ditch there because maybe we'd survive if we were, uh, let's see, under the earth or up against the earth in a kind of cave. A curious woman she was, mad as a hatter. Anyway, uh, this is a fairly practical essay. It is a synthesis of what's gone down. Um, I do not think that it really does study the disposition to evil. I prefer Hannah Arendt's uh, discussion of the banal quality of evil, the ordinariness of evil, just the general, the general fascist... Um, fundamental, what is the word for that, uh, and not fact-free fascism, but mostly just um, a desire to punish, the notion that you can fix things by punishing people and uh, forcing them to do things the right way, the wrong way. I have just time, I think, to read you something that I found very funny. It's also in this issue of the... Uh, of Harper's. There's a whole batch of these. They're from um, African scholars and writers. <laughs> and they they give me a wonderful spin on the African view of what we do and what fools we are here in the U.S. of A. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a kick. Oh, yes. Um, the bit about the... Yes. Uh, next time I'll read you the one about the wind-up radio. And the one about uh, biogas. This stuff is so funny. Uh, we are so, so obsessed with the white man's burden, all this nonsense about saving Africa. It's the Africans who will save Africa. Uh, let's face it. Anyway, this piece is by an African scholar whose name is, what is his name, uh, uh, I can't pronounce it. I can't pronounce it. Binya, Binyavanga Wainaniana. I'm not getting it right. He published, he's the editor of an African literary magazine, and uh, this article he wrote while living in Kenya. He writes, when free American maize turned up in Kenyan schools in the 1980s, <laughs> it arrived in bags and presented itself at school dining tables, steaming yellow, not white like the maize flour we knew as a staple. We had heard this food was coming. We had heard people were starving to death, only a few miles away from us, in fact, over the border. But even that was out there. We were all hearing on the radio this song about the starving people in Africa 
And we were singing these songs as well, thrilled that we too could feel mushy about people in Africa. We saw the sacks unloaded. We started to speculate. I must confess that I hated school food anyway, and that yellow maize porridge tasted not much worse than everything else we were forced to eat. <laughs> But what was powerful was our speculations. It is American animal feed, we said. So it started tasting a bit too earthy. It has been treated with contraceptive chemicals, we said. It started to taste metallic. It was sent to us because it has gone bad already. So it started to smell funny. Soon, in the high school dining hall, vast amounts of yellow porridge went directly into the bins. Our teachers, normally violent fascists in matters of discipline, looked the other way. We had food fights with the porridge every evening, and the floor would be littered with the clumpy remnants of America's love. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Walk in light, light em up, boys. There's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. Yo soy Silvia Ledesma. Yo soy Julieta Tisni. Aquí con.